As we begin this morning um, in our, our sermon, I want to read something to you, and I know you won't be able to see the picture, but you can kind of see the colors maybe. Um, but this is a book that I read to Olive each night and Fern, um, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And I just wanted to read this to you because sometimes, sometimes kids' books really put things into unique perspective, and I just think that this is pretty pretty great. Before everything, before God made the morning stars to shine, before he made the seas, before he made the mountains, before he made anything at all, God did something. What? Loved you and chose you as his own. Ephesians 1, 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. Tonight, or this morning, not tonight, this morning, we're talking about 1 John 4, 13 through 21. The message is entitled, Love Gives. And I just think uh, that this is a fitting way to begin this message by considering that before time began, before the world was created, before we were created, he chose us because he loves us. And so love gives. What does love give? It's threefold. Love gives evidence. Love gives confidence. And love gives a reflection. And so let's read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 13 of 1 John 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, that even before we existed, you loved us. Even before we were ever born, you loved us. And as your word says, for those who have believed you, you have chosen us. Lord, you loved us before we could even entertain the idea of love. And we thank you. We we don't even begin to fathom what that truly means or what what, what all that does in our hearts, Lord, but You are working in us as we trust you and believe in you, Lord. I ask that you would open our eyes to see what your word has to say this morning. Just bless us uh, during this study, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so evidence. I just want to look at verses 13 through 16 for this evidence. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we, we have come to know and to believe 
the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we see the Trinity on display in these verses. The Holy Spirit in verse 13. We see the Son in verses 14 and 15. We see the Father throughout it all, uh, verses 14 through 16. It's the Godhead working in perfect harmony to display the love of God for us and to us. The Son is sent to die for us. The Holy Spirit is given to live in us. And all of this is evidence of the amazing love that God has for his dear children. It's all orchestrated by the Father in perfect union with the Son and the Spirit. Now the love that we, his children, have, both for God and for his people, and for others as well, reveals that the Holy Spirit is living in us as an evidence, as a, as a proof that the love of God is in us. And it's all because of what Christ has done. So it's all interconnected. It's all woven together. Um, you can't really separate any of this out and say, well, this is more important than this, more important than that, that kind of thing. It's all interconnected. So John begins verse 13 by using a common phrase that he's used throughout this letter. By this we know. In fact, he uses this phrase ten times in this letter, 1 John. He wants the reader to know something. He wants the reader to be assured of something, which has been really one of the main purposes of his writing. How do we know that this gift of the Spirit that he's talking about and the work of the Spirit is real? How do we know that all of this is what, it said, what the Word says it is? Well, Nate last week showed us from verse 12 that it is our love for another that gives evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. Another evidence, another proof. And why is that? Why, why is this love um, evidence of the Holy Spirit's work? Well, it's because one of the main jobs that the Holy Spirit does in us is to pour the love of God into our hearts. This love, God's love, will be shown towards our brothers and sisters and others because God is producing himself in us. And so that's what God does inside believers. He produces the fruit of his spirit. He produces himself in us. And as we look at this passage, John will flesh this out just a little bit more. In verses 15 and 16, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. John is showing his reader, which includes us, that we have been given the Holy Spirit as a gift of grace. The Holy Spirit is a gift. And we have confessed, um, in verse 14 it says we testify, we, we have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. And we are abiding in God's love, and God's love is abiding in us. God will not take these amazing gifts away. We have the Holy Spirit, and he is ours now and forever. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called a seal. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This word seal is a pledge. Um, the Holy Spirit was given to us as a seal or a pledge on his people to show that we are his. You know, if you have ever seen a signet ring um, and what it does when put into 
hot wax or warm wax or whatever, and, you know, it seals something, you know, it's not something we do a lot anymore, but um, maybe the only time we see it nowadays is fancy wedding invitations or something like that. But um, back in the day, the ancient world, um, rulers and magistrates and people of authority, they would put their signet ring into some wax to show that this indeed was something that they had promised or said or commanded or spoken or whatever, and it was a pledge that that was official. It was authenticated as coming from this person with authority. And so the Holy Spirit has put his seal on us. God has put his seal on us, and it is the Holy Spirit. So we are assured of salvation because no one can break the seal of God. This idea of a seal or pledge not only was used to show or prove authority and authenticity, but it was also to show proof of a down payment. It was the earnest or the first installment guaranteeing full payment would be made. So when someone would... Uh, do a down payment or, you know, the the first payment and guarantee that they would be uh, able to pay the rest, they would put their stamp, their signet ring in the wax and sign that they were guaranteeing that full payment would be made. Now, let's be clear. Your salvation is paid in full, so this is not speaking of your salvation. There is nothing left that remains to be paid. This down payment is not about your salvation, but rather your inheritance, The Holy Spirit shows who you belong to and is given as guarantee of the inheritance that awaits you. We live in the time of the already and the not yet. We have the full assurance of our salvation. And spiritually speaking, we are seated in heavenly places. But we have yet to physically experience that. And sometimes we feel the full weight of that, right? We feel the full weight of the flesh that is with us. And we see it when we, when we sin or when we struggle. We see that, that waiting in between where we have these promises that we're trusting in. We are looking to the one day when we will see Christ and all of the other stuff will fall away. But we also realize that right now we have these promises, though we don't fully experience it. The Holy Spirit is the down payment that guarantees that one day those who are his will indeed live forever with God in his kingdom. In verse 16 of our passage today, we see for the second time, John declare that God is love. And how is it that we come to know this? How do we know that God is love? How do we see this in our lives? How do we, how do we experience this? How, how is it that that happens? We know through the evidence that John has written of, the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, the gift of the Son for our salvation. These testify and give evidence of God's love abiding in us. These things give us a settled reality and assurance. And I know that for many, the idea of assurance is a struggle. Many struggle with with really grasping the confidence that you have these promises in Christ, that you've been born again, and that one day you will be uh, with him forever. This is one way to see that that is true of us. You know, it's pretty simple, actually, as you read through the passage. We, we tend to complicate it, and I don't mean that to, to criticize, but just the fact that we do that, I do that. Verses 14 and 15. Well, actually, I'll start with 13 again. By this we know that we abide in him and he in in us because he has given us of his spirit. So that's the first evidence. We have the spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we testify the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We believe the gospel. 
we confess the gospel. The next verse says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. These, these things are rather simple, aren't they? We have the Spirit, and we testify that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We confess that He is the Son of God. These things show that we have the love of God and that we have the Holy Spirit within us. So this does give us an assurance of God's love for us, gives us an assurance of our standing in Christ. And so we love and we have love because it's a fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit is working inside of us, and He is the seal, the guarantee of our future. And so love gives evidence. But love gives more than evidence. It also gives us confidence. Verses 17 and 18, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So either eternal life or eternal punishment awaits all of humanity. There's only two options here. Either you will experience eternal life or you will experience eternal punishment. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's love furnishes a sure hope, a confidence for those who have trusted in him. This confidence is twofold. It's a future confidence, but it has very real present consequences. It is a future confidence that we do not have to fear what awaits us. We are receiving the love of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, and this love dispels fear of what the future holds as far as judgment is concerned. And we can enjoy those realities right now. You can live in the confidence and hope of what awaits you. This fear uh, is, is mainly about what is to come. It's mainly about standing before the Lord and whether you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. This is showing us that as those of us who have believed in Christ, who have confessed Jesus, and who have the Holy Spirit, have no need to fear what will be said on that day. That fear is being driven out. And so uh, John is telling us here that this love that we have is perfected with, or some translations say, in us. See, love has an intended goal. This word perfected speaks of completion. So we're talking about being brought to maturity. God's love produces confidence in the believer. It's not just that we can be ready, but that we can be confident about standing before God. And as we grow in grace, and as the Holy Spirit continues to shed the love of God abroad in our hearts, this is growing and maturing within us as we continue to trust in Christ. And as I mentioned before, many of us have struggled with assurance. You know, I've struggled with assurance a good bit. I know my wife has struggled with assurance a good bit. And I know from conversations that some of you have struggled with assurance a good bit. It's, it's really, I think, a very normal thing for us to struggle. And a lot of eschatology and time study causes lots of fear in, as far as how things shape up. I can remember watching several movies as a child, about the end times and really becoming fearful about what was to come and uh, just thinking, man, there's no way I'm going to, quote-unquote, make it. 
you know, and, and I can't even recall the names of those films off the top of my head. I'm sure, I'm sure later on I'll remember them, but that's not really of any use to you anyway, so uh, just suggest not to watch them. Uh, but I, it, really, it really caused me to struggle with, with thinking whether I'd make it or not because these people were big and brave and bold and they could do all these things, and I wasn't. So there was no way that I was going to survive through the end. But the believer has this confidence that when we stand before God, he will see us as he sees the Son. My fear was that it was all about me, and if the Lord saw me as I am, then there was no way I would make it. But what Scripture is telling us is that it's not about you and your standing. It's about his Son, and he sees you as he sees his Son. The way the believer stands in relation to God and to the world is the same way that Jesus does. Because the believer is in Christ. One commentator writes this, This stunning statement means that the Father treats the saints the same way he does his Son, Jesus Christ. God clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ, and he grants the Son's perfect love and obedience. Someday believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as their Lord and Savior does. When they reach the final accounting, they will see the fulfillment of 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And so, believers, today we can have this confidence that this is how God sees us and will see us when we stand before him. So, therefore, what use is there to have any fear about that? Jesus stands before the Father perfect, and that's how God sees you in Christ. So this love gives us confidence. Why is it that love gives us this confidence? Why is it that there is no more need for fear, for punishment or judgment? It's because all of God's wrath, all the punishment that you and I deserve, it was, it was well-deserved. You and I deserved this judgment, this punishment, but it all fell on Christ. Now everything that he has won is ours as well. We deserve judgment and wrath. Our sin demanded that. It would have been just for us to be punished for our sin. But Scripture tells us that Jesus took this punishment for us, giving us His righteousness. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so there was this legal wrath. There was a just sentence that stood against us. But Jesus paid our debt and he canceled its legal record against us with all the demands of that. And so it was paid in full. And in fact, the history shows us that what this is referring to is on the gate of the city, they would always have uh, the debts listed. And so when someone would pay their debt, they would fold it up and they would put a nail through it or some kind of mark, perhaps a seal, to show that it had been paid in full. And Jesus did this for us, nailing this to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we stand now as the righteousness of God. We have been clothed in Christ's righteous robes. 
because we are in Christ. His death has become our death. His life has become our life. His standing in perfect obedience, perfect submission, is what it means when it says we are sitting in heavenly places. That is ours. His record is our record. Romans 5, 8, and 9, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so we are saved from the wrath of God. There is no more wrath for the believer. If there is wrath awaiting us, then God's word is false. And it is not. Later in Romans, Paul tells us not to fear condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why can we stand with no condemnation against us? Because we are in Christ, and there is no condemnation against Christ. We have everything that he has for us, and now we can say it's just for us as believers in Christ to stand with no fear of condemnation. That is the new just for us. It would have been just for us to be punished for our sins, but Christ took that punishment, and so now it is just for us to stand before God with no fear. Now, we're not speaking of the fear of God. There is, the Bible does talk about a good fear of God. Um, I don't have uh, really anything else to say about that this morning, uh, but I, I want to be able to at least separate that idea. We're not talking about that fear. We're talking about the fear that has to do with punishment. Not awe of who God is. Not a respect for God's holiness. We're talking about fear of being sentenced to eternal hell. We have, as believers, no reason to fear that condemnation. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the believer. He fills the believer with the love of God. And this love dispels the fear of condemnation, the fear of wrath, the fear of judgment. The believer is in Christ, united with him in his death and resurrection. And now the life that Christ lives, lives in you. I don't know if you guys remember a few weeks back. Um, I know not everybody was here for this, but um, you can find it on our Facebook page or YouTube or whatever. Um, but I did a, like a physical demonstration. I was warned um, not to make any more messes. Uh, we just had the carpets cleaned and... So I was told not to make a mess. Um, but back a few weeks ago, I, I had a table set up, and I had several cups, and I had a cup on top, and I poured some blue dyed water into the top cup, and it overflowed, spilling into the other cups and onto the floor and onto my pants and all that good stuff. Um, made a mess. But the, the water was, this demonstration was to show that as God's love fills our hearts, it spills over. And I mentioned at that time that Chanel had kind of told me of this other example with um, water being poured into cups and all this stuff, and that I didn't really fully comprehend it because, well, science. And uh, I talked to her a little bit more about it. I think I finally have a little grasp of it. Um, but I, I want to share this part with you, but I'm, again, like I said, I'm not allowed to physically show you, or she told me she would uh, ground me. Um, but imagine if those cups that I had had out, the bottom cups, had been filled with, like, murky water, dirty water. And you poured the nice, clean, fresh water into those cups that had the dirty, murky water. Well, as water fills that container, it dispels the dirty, murky water, pushing it out. 
I don't understand completely how dispersion works, but it, it works, I guess. Uh, but it drives out all of these dirty elements out of the cup. Love does this to fear and other clinging tendrils of the flesh. As the Holy Spirit continues to do his work, filling us with his love, with the love of God, it shoves out fear. It shoves out all these other remaining bits. Now, you and I will not see perfection uh, in this lifetime. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're not going to get there. Um, You can keep waiting for that. But there will be a day when we see Christ and that that happens and all the flesh is done away with. But as long as we are in this flesh, we will struggle. We will, we will, we will commit acts of sin. But these things like fear and the things that cling to us as we're filled more and more with the love of God, it drives these things out. Love drives out fear. It casts out fear. It might not all happen immediately all at once, but it is driving it out. I've often heard this passage taken to say, like, oh, you can't have any fear here on this earth. If you have any type of fear, uh, that shows that the love of God is not in you. It's not talking about things like fear of the unknown. It's not talking about things like fear about uh, what might happen when you go to the doctor tomorrow or something like that. There, There is an element that while we are in this flesh, we will still deal with those kind of things. We will fear... Um, for our children's safety. We will fear for our own lives at times. Um, And certainly we need to have a trust in God that supersedes that, but we're not perfect in that. So if you're perfect in that, I would love to know how you got there Um, because we're not. The fear that John is writing to combat is the fear of judgment, the fear of standing before God and, and, and what will happen at that moment, the fear of punishment. The believer can live free from the grip of this fear. We need not fear this. This is what God's love is casting out. This is what his love is dispelling in our lives. God's love is granting to you confidence of where you stand in Christ. And when you stand before God, there will be no shred of fear in you. Because again, God sees you now and he will see you then as he sees his own son, Jesus. He sees you clothed in righteousness. He sees you with a perfect record of obedience. You are his delight, and you are the object of his affection. So this love that is evidence of our abiding in God fills us with confidence of our future, and it's also a reflection of the character and the heart of God. Verses 19 through 21 say we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I assume we all know that the moon does not shine in and of itself. It is not a source of light, but rather reflects the sunlight, though it often does shine pretty brightly. I read that it only reflects somewhere between 3 and 12% of the sunlight that hits its surface. John is showing that this is true of humanity as well. On our own, we do not have the ability to love like God. We are not a source of love. 
we may show a natural affection and kindness. And by uh, what we call common grace, there is um, some ability to love um, kind of remnants of the image that we were created in before the fall. But we're not able to love like God loves. We're not able to love in such a pure, sacrificial way naturally. Yet God is lavishing his love on us. He's filling us with it. And the order here is important. God loved us first. And now we can love. Our love finds its origin in God's love. He loves us and the love that now abides in us and has been perfected and is being perfected in us overflows in love for God and for people. It is a supernatural gift for the believer. It's, it's a work that is being, being done in us supernaturally. But it is a reality that the believer is living in right now. As Nate put it last week, it is inevitable for the believer. God has taken up residence in the house. He is in the house, so get used to it. Believer, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. Do you think that you can possibly produce this on your own? Do you think you can possibly produce love on your own? No. But it is a fruit of the Spirit, and He's doing this in you. And so it's going to be there. The Word promises us that it is there. John goes on to give this very simple, logical, if-then statement here in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if anyone says they love God but hates his brother, then the verdict is clear. He is a liar. The love of God is not in this person. If you who lack the natural ability to love someone with this love, find this love in you. No matter how small, no matter how imperfect, but if it is there, it's because you have been born again. It's not natural to you. It's supernatural. The believer has tasted and seen that God is good and that love is now overflowing in that believer's heart. The believer shines this love because the love of God has shined on them. And so it's a reflection of God's heart. It's a reflection of God's love because it's not natural to us. God, by loving us first, by moving first, by taking the initiative in loving us, has invited us into the relationship that God has known for all eternity. At the beginning of this message, I said that in this passage, we see the Trinity on full display. We must consider that for God to be love, that there is an object for that love. And before time began, what was the object for God's love through eternity past? Now, we know, even from the account of this children's book that I read, he thought of us well before time began, and he loved us. But it's deeper than that. God himself, from eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in a loving community, in relationship, loving one another. This loving relationship that the three persons of the Trinity have is bound up in the nature of God. God is love. Jared C. Wilson, uh, an author of many good books, and uh, I don't know how he does it, but he manages to write like 15 books a year, it seems like. He writes this, So the Trinity isn't some weird religious aberration Christians have stupidly clung to. It's the answer to the deepest longing of the human heart. 
The Trinity answers history's oldest desire. It even clarifies the question. It makes us go deeper than sentimental notions and ethereal feelings and elusive emotions. It puts us on solid ground with all this love stuff that we've been chasing forever. We're all looking for love. Deep down, we all need it in ways we don't understand or even acknowledge. We search and search. We find glimpses, moments, tastes, and samples of love. We have genuine experiences of love, and yet nothing quite gets us outside of our own hurts, our own self-interest, our own sins. We need the realest love there is. And this love of God is the realest love there is. And we are invited to it, to experience it, to live in it. This love of God overflowed when he created the universe and all that is within it. When he planned to send the Son to redeem us from our sin, it was an overflow of his love that he had within the Trinity. When he saw for himself and chose for himself a people from every tribe and nation and tongue, He was opening the Trinitarian love to us and inviting us to the table. C.S. Lewis referred to this relationship of the Trinity as a dance. He wrote, God is a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will, not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. He would also say that the only way to experience the true happiness and joy that we seek is to enter the dance. And so the proclamation of the gospel is the invitation to the dance. It's an invitation to this relationship that has existed since all eternity past. Jesus was crucified. He died. He was buried And rose again so that you could enter the dance. So that you could truly experience love. Real love for the first time. The same love that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in and experienced for all of eternity. And so all one must do to experience this is believe on the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ. Trust in him that he bore all your sin that he canceled the record of sin against you. When you trust in this good news, the gospel, you are swallowed up in the love that God has enjoyed since before time began. Brothers and sisters, God loved you first. As we wrap up, there's just a couple of things I want to leave for you uh, to consider through the week. Uh, Feel free to use these in group for discussion or just around the table with your families or just to chew on as you sit and think about this message. First, how do I love others? Now, this question is not really about the practical ways that we can demonstrate love. And so, yes, I'm asking a question and kind of prodding you towards an answer at the same time. The answer to this question, I'll say it this way, is not, well, I can do this and I can do that and I can go do these things. I want you to dig a little deeper in considering this. Consider what we have heard about love. And so in that way, think through how do I love others? How is it all connected? And the second question kind of flows from that. How is this love connected to the Trinity? So use those, discuss Um, You can find them on on the website in the notes. I actually put the the correct notes this time. Uh, 
Sometimes I mess that up. Uh, but if you can find them online and you can, you can look at them if you forgot them or didn't write them down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have invited us to the dance, that you have welcomed us in. Lord, this morning I know that some of us struggle with the idea of assurance. We struggle with the idea of confidence. And maybe there is still some uh, clinging tendrils of fear in us about punishment and those things. I I ask, Lord, that uh, you would do a gracious work in our hearts and remove that fear, uh, lift that fear from us, And, Lord, do that in in such an amazing, incredible way as we consider your love, as we just open our hearts again to be filled with your love. And I just pray that for the the body this morning, Lord, that you would fill us to overflowing with your love, that we might know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of that love in Christ Jesus. Lord, just continue to fill us with your spirit and with that love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.